Brad Warner is a Soto Zen priest. Although he's not really a Zen priest, but what else do you call him? Yeah, I suppose. You know, you have these words that came out of the Catholic tradition, like priest and ah. monk. And, and what happens in Zen is different, but, you know, it's the best equivalent. Anyway, he's with me via Skype today to talk about Dogen, Japan's greatest Zen master from the 13th century. Brad Warner says he's got something to say to us today. And so we're going to talk about that as well as punk rock and zombie movies. And, and that's when you, you might want to look for a group to sit with, because you'll, you'll find that your Aunt Tessie and your, and your cousin Bob or whoever, they don't really understand what you're talking about when you, when you start to, to talk about these things you've experienced or, or things you've felt you've understood through your practice. And then, then you start to look for retreats and teachers and things. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. Stick around. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click Donate. For the Pacifica Radio Network, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. But the truth is actually more you than you are. Brad Warner is a Soto Zen priest. He also plays bass for the punk band Zero Defects. And he plays a Zen priest named Brad in the important film, Zombie Bounty Hunter M.D. There are zombies, bloodthirsty, ferocious, walking undead, roaming the city side. As a band of civilians have come together, bonded by altruism. Zombie bounty hunters, they call themselves. He also has a curious interest in the 13th century Japanese Zen master Dogen. He's in the process of translating Dogen's work for a modern audience. In the course of the hour, we are going to explore a lot of stuff, including Brad Warner's two books based on Dogen's work. They are Don't Be a Jerk and Other Practical Advice from Dogen, Japan's Greatest Zen Master, and It Came From Beyond Zen, More Practical Advice from Dogen. Japan's greatest Zen master. Brad's website is hardcorezen.info. He's with me via Skype from L.A. Welcome, Brad, to Progressive Spirit. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Hey, uh, I know this sounds like it's going to be really an historical dry question, but it is. And can you can you just give a, a, a history in a minute or two of Zen? <laughs> history of Zen. Okay, Zen is Zen. People like to trace. The, the Zen movement all the way back to Buddha, but historians usually think of it as starting in China at a time when Buddhism had, had already existed for between 500 and 1,000 years, and it had kind of, in the eyes of certain people, strayed away from its original intent, which was uh, this meditation practice. So historically, the Buddha went around India teaching people to meditate. That's a short version of his story. And then he died, and this sort of religion grew up around him. And then later on, after 500 or 1,000 years, people started to look back on it and say, hey, wait a minute, this was all about meditation to begin with, so let's focus on that. And Zen just means meditation. So to say Zen Buddhism is like saying meditation Buddhism. However, there is a certain sort of sectarian feel to it if you want to get into that. But it, it, So it was a movement of Chinese teachers trying to bring Buddhism back to its original roots of, of being a meditation practice specifically. I think that's a short version. Okay. And, uh, and just to get some vocab down and then, and tell me how, how to pronounce this Zazen. Yeah. Zazen. Zazen. And that's really the meditative practice itself. Right. But you also write in your book that Zazen is different from meditation. Well, yeah, a lot of people who teach and practice Zazen would 
make a difference between that and meditation. And I understand that. I, I've kind of, I don't know, I straddle the line there. I kind of sometimes call it meditation and sometimes don't, depending on who I'm talking to. The, the difference is meditation is usually goal-directed. So most forms of meditation that I'm aware of have, have something that they're trying to achieve. They're either trying to achieve spiritual awakening of some sort, or they're trying to achieve mindfulness, or they're trying to achieve something. And in Zazen, there isn't a goal, which is the thing that, that drives people batty about Zazen, because you're, you're trying to get into the pure experience of just sitting still, which you would think would be easy, like, oh, anybody can just sit still. But if you actually try it, you'll see that it's a little bit more difficult than that. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, the practice itself and, and what, what happens? Well, what happens? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I just did it uh, a little bit before we started talking. I do it every morning. So I just sit there and and get my little cross-legged posture going on my cushion and let whatever comes up come up. So I'm not trying to stop thinking. I'm not trying to achieve anything. But I'm just kind of letting go. And this, and this process of letting go is actually very active. You, you'd think that it, it's a kind of a passive thing, but you're, you're actually, anytime something comes up, you'll, you'll kind of get a little mental hook, you know, for certain things. And, and you'll get stuck in a little mental place for a bit. And then you realize that's happening. And you'll also notice if you're perceptive enough, that your posture has subtly changed. Subtly? Subtly is a hard word to pronounce. Anyway, your posture <laughs> has changed a little bit because your body always kind of follows the cues that the mind gives it. So you get your posture back in order and just continue until the next thing hooks you. <laughs> and then you, you drop that, get your posture back together. And this, you know, this just goes on for however long you've decided to sit. And it sounds very simple, but there's there's a lot of depth to it because once you've kind of gotten through the the superficial layers of what the mind tends to toss up at you when you do that, there's a lot going on underneath that you probably are not at all aware of that you might even be shocked by. It's kind of like a, in some respects, kind of a truth serum. <laughs> a bit, a bit. It's like a truth serum for yourself because, you, yeah, that's actually a good analogy because you you stop, you tell yourself a lot of things and you think you believe certain things and it's interesting to notice that you don't actually believe a lot of your own beliefs. I mean, that sounds absurd when you first in, encounter the idea that that might be the case. But if you keep going with it, I guarantee anybody will discover that they don't believe a lot of the things that they think they believe, which is very ironic. I was speaking with Brad Warner. He's the author of a couple of books we're going to get to in just a second. Uh, called uh, One is called It Came From Beyond Zen, uh, More Practical Advice from Dogen, Japan's Greatest Zen Master, and that was preceded by uh, his first on this uh, series of Don't Be a Jerk uh, and Other Practical Advice from Dogen, Japan's Greatest Zen Master. Brad is a, a Zen priest. Is that, uh, is that uh, the correct name for you? Yeah, I suppose. You know, you have these words that came out of the Catholic tradition, like priest and ah. monk. And, and what happens in Zen is different, but, you know, it's the best equivalent. Well, so you, I was ordained. <laughs> so you, you were ordained, and, and, uh, and that's a process, too, because that takes, again, all of that sincerity. That's what I read in, in the ordination process. It's, it's really about a teacher saying this person may have it. Yeah, the, the teacher kind of recognizes that, that the person that they've been working with may be ready to kind of go off on their own and start teaching this stuff. Uh, so, so at that point, uh, there's a ceremony to acknowledge it. And it's sort of up to the person who goes through that ceremony what they want to do with that. That's, that's I guess, where the difference between uh, the Catholic tradition and the Zen tradition is. It sort of depends on your teacher. Some teachers have, have certain requirements that they want to have met, but there's no sort of agreed-upon 
standard the way there is in Catholicism. And this, I, I could go on and on about this because there are arguments raging within the ranks of, of, of about what I'm saying right now. But I think overall, most people would agree that there isn't really an agreed upon standard. Some people think there should be, but uh, but there just isn't. Well, let's just call you a Zen priest, because I'm, and my thing is, how cool is that? I mean, I'm a Presbyterian <laughs> minister, but, you know, it's it's just simply Are not you? as cool. Yeah. I mean, don't you ever say to yourself, wow, I'm a Zen priest. That is really cool. You know, most of the time I, I'm, I'm ambivalent about it. And I feel sometimes I feel like, oh, God, I never should have done that. You know, I had a I had a certain life before that happened. And I wrongly assumed I could continue that life after doing the ceremony, but it wasn't to be. And it, all things considered, it's better, I suppose, than the life I had before. But, uh, you know, now a lot of people react to me in ways that I'm still learning how to deal with. Well, I know, I think I know what you mean. Uh, people have a feeling uh, about uh, religious people or clerics or whatever. I, I don't know, even, even that's the right word. Uh, they think we're almost magical, that our prayers will work or we can change the weather. You get to that kind of stuff, too, and you get lots of questions like I'm asking you. Yeah, yeah, and, it, and it's in the, the sort of mystical aspects of Zen yeah. kind of contribute even more so to that possibly I don't know you know it might be the same with a Presbyterian minister I don't really know but there's a certain sense of this otherworldliness or that that you have some kind of I don't know something some mojo you know that you're gonna you're gonna bestow upon the people and I, I got no mojo <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that I thought you were pretty good in the uh, film uh, what was it zombie bounty hunter MD <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a funny. Yeah, that that was uh, my friend Piruz Calais is a filmmaker, and he makes these. He, the, the films are super low budget, but they they look very good because he knows how to get talented people to work for cheap. And uh, that in that movie, I play kind of a outlandish parody of myself. So, and I'm even called Brad in it. And I was really worried at the time uh, that we we made the the film like oh shouldn't we call this character dave or something because people will think it's me <laughs> well you know it's really good it's funny and uh and you see now people might say well there must be a teaching moment in and being a, a, a zen priest in a zombie film so i'll just ask you what is the deeper purpose i'm not sure is there is there a deeper purpose it's just something i wanted to do and i was really attracted to the the notion behind the film is how the internet is sort of corrupting all of us into being, you know, kind of prostitutes for 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 fame. Uh -huh. And 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 I I like the idea that I would play a character like a parody of myself who doesn't care. In in the film, there's a zombie outbreak, and then there's a group of people who decide rather than doing anything to stop these zombies killing people and eating them, they're just going to video it and put it on YouTube and become famous for for breaking the story. But they 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 have difficulty breaking the story, so they keep they they're they're almost encouraging more zombies to kill more people so that they can get more footage and then they rope me into it and I, I kind of play this I, I see this in in sort of popular religious figures all the time where they'll just do they'll just do anything for a bit of publicity and you you kind of go really you know isn't that antithetical to everything you stand for but they'll do it anyway because it gets them notice so so that's kind of the character I'm playing <laughs> well, it's it's awesome, and and you're also uh, just another aspect of your life. You probably all kinds, but uh, this one is rather public too. You also play bass in a punk rock band. Yeah, the band is Zero Defects, and it formed in the early '80s. Actually, I wasn't in the first version of of Zero Defects. They were active for a year or two before I joined, but they kept they had a kind of revolving door bass player thing until I became the bass player and then stuck with the band long term. And uh, we were much more active in the early days. And these days we play a couple of times a year. We've made a couple of CDs, though. So those are those are out there. 
Uh, if you're just joining us, my guest is Brad Warner. His website is hardcorezen.info. Uh, a Zen priest, for lack of a better word, uh, and, and I, we talk about zombie movies and we can talk about punk rock bands, but this is you are also a real very serious scholar and have uh, done a translation of um, the Japanese Zen Buddhist master Dogen. So this took some study getting this together. Uh, tell me a little bit about Dogen and his importance. Well, Dogen lived in the 1200s in Japan, and he was a Zen monk, as you say. His importance, though, he came at the time Buddhism had been a subject of academic study in Japan for a while, and there were people who sort of considered themselves to be Buddhists, but there wasn't a lot of sort of practice, and, and that was just beginning. Dogen lost both of his parents at, a, at an early age. He was a, the son of an aristocrat or two aristocrats who both, who both died young. His father was murdered, and no, we don't know why his mother died, but his mother died when he was young. And and this spurred him to try to find something more true and deeply reliable. And when he was 11 or 12 years old, he became uh, a Zen monk in in one of the first Zen temples established in Japan. I think maybe it was the second or third temple that had been established in that tradition in Japan at that time. But he he didn't think that the the teachers he met, most of them really got it. Uh, but he did find one teacher he liked, and he traveled with that teacher to China to try to find the kind of roots of of Buddhism. And you, you have to remember that in these days, Japan was kind of a little backwater nation that nobody cared about or paid any attention to, whereas China was like the center of civilization. Even by European standards, they were pretty uh, far beyond what was going on in the Middle Ages in Europe technologically and everything else wise. So so he went to China and and found a teacher that he liked and who who made him a teacher in his lineage and he went back to Japan and he wrote a ton of stuff about Buddhist practice and established a temple. Well and then what happened which I find kind of fascinating is the temple that he founded spawned a lot of sub temples and became very popular. And so Dogen, for hundreds of years, was regarded as the the great man who had founded this series of this bunch of temples. You know, he, well, in his lifetime, he only had one, but they spawned others after he died. So uh, he was highly regarded, but he, although he produced a tremendous body of written work, very few people read it, and it wasn't really widely read until. Honestly, the 20th century. There are some there are some blips if you look at the history where it sort of started to become popular to read Dogen and then faded away. And, and it wasn't until the 20th century that it became very widely studied. Uh, so, so a lot of people wonder why that is, and I wonder why that is, and I have some speculations, mostly around. I think maybe the world wasn't ready for what Dogen had to say. 500 years ago or 300 years ago. You know, he, he was working and writing 800 years ago, but it took the world that long to catch up. Uh, th this is my opinion, anyway. And the uh, and the work that you have uh, translated and paraphrased in these two books, um, uh, Don't Be a Jerk, and It Came From Beyond Zen, is from his work called uh, the Shobogenzo. Is that pronounced right? Yeah, Shobogenzo, and it just means treasury of the true Dharma eye. It sounds, tends to be less of a mouthful once you can remember it to say Shobogenzo than try to give it the English translation, which is why I think it kind of stuck with the Japanese. Yeah, and it was this, it wasn't even a book as such. He just would, because the books, bound books, didn't exist in, in Japan in his day. So he would just write these these little chapters, and we don't know how many copies were produced. I mean, they had to be produced by hand. But in his lifetime, people estimate maybe fewer than 10 copies of his written works even existed uh, while he was alive. So, yeah, that, that's his masterwork, is, is Shobogenzo. Yeah, and as you'd said, that only like about maybe 50 people at most might have ever read it in his, in his lifetime. Uh yeah, yeah, that's my guess, and I and I'm I, you know you mentioned me being a scholar, and I feel like I, I I'm not I don't know if I'm really qualify as a Dogen scholar. I mean, I'm privately, but I've never held any degrees in it, 
And I, I went and asked somebody who did have the proper credentials what they thought of that estimate. I forget who it was. Anyway, but he said he said he, he would estimate it far less than 50. He, he seemed to think it was, you know, a dozen people might have read it when he was alive. So uh, so I think 50 was a generous estimate. I'm speaking with Brad Warner, and uh, we're talking about his book that is uh, a paraphrase, really, of this book, uh, The True Treasury of the Dharma Eye by uh, Dogen uh, back in the 13th century. And your uh, paraphrase here, uh, you talked about it being kind of um, written on a model of a person here from Portland, Mark Russell, who wrote a book called um, God is Disappointed in You. And I have that book. It's awesome. Uh, it's really what it, which and that is people don't to tell folks what that is, that's a small paraphrase of the Bible for folks who don't want to read all of the Bible stuff, you know, all the repetitions. Yeah. It's kind of down to earth. Now, it's really a paraphrase. It's really loose. I I'm guessing your paraphrase of Dogen is a little closer to the text. It probably is. Yeah, I, I found that book, or actually a friend of mine found that book, God is Disappointed in You, and she made the suggestion that I try doing that with Dogen. And and yeah, I think mine is is closer. I'm not uh, and and I think that's because fewer people are familiar with Dogen's writing. But I, I kind of have this. I've kind of come along at an interesting historical point at which there are a few good normal translations of Dogen out there. If anybody wants to to look for them, if I'd tried to do this book twenty years ago, that wouldn't have been the case, and it would have been kind of an absurd exercise. But now that there are more standard versions of Dogen's writings available in English, I feel like, okay, I can kind of bounce off those and make something more readable. The, the, the problem with Dogen is that it's 800-year-old Japanese philosophy. So if you make a straight translation, no matter, no matter what you do, it's going to be difficult. And even the best attempts at doing a straight translation that that are supposed supposedly easy to read kind of fall apart. I mean, people have even complained that my stuff isn't that easy to read. They should read the original. But but I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to take the ideas I find in Dogen or the the understanding that I've gotten from reading him and make it into something that anybody can read. And you know, I, I do it with some jokes and humor. I actually feel like Dogen has jokes, but I, I think most translators miss them because they're so weird. Yeah. Well, it also, you talk about it, you put it this way, I thought was was really well. You want to get the meaning behind the words, not necessarily the words. I don't know if that's the right... Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's important yeah. to know. You know, for example, he'll he'll take... He'll take an example from Chinese philosophy or an example from Japanese folklore and, and things like that and then and then riff on that for a while. And and I realize that my readers aren't gonna know these old traditional stories. So I try to find the best sort of contemporary Western equivalents. Because often these these stories kind of transcend culture. You know, a lot of cultures have variations on the same stories. And, you know, you can take something like, uh, what was it? Uh, I, I did the Beer and Doritos Sutra as one of the things, because it's the Mountain and River Sutra. And he was just taking an example of something that his audience living in the mountains would have been very familiar with. So I thought, well, what are people now very familiar with? And 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 I don't know, beer and Doritos is probably too a step too far. But you know, I, I tried to find the same, you know, to say the same things about our commonplace stuff as he says about the commonplace stuff of his time. Give a little bit of an overview, if you if you could. I, I don't know. There's certainly not, as you said, said he isn't a book. Uh, is it really a lot of disparate pieces? Yeah, well, each he tended to do this thing where he would title a chapter Shobo Genzo and then a subtitle to, to kind of indicate that they belonged together. Uh, he died quite young. He was 54 when he died. And, and nobody knows quite sure why. All they know is that he got very ill and then passed away. And, you know, it was, it was 800 years ago. So that was happening more frequently than than it does now. And and so he left behind this this work that was mostly finished, but nobody had ever compiled it together into a piece. So there was there have been some 
um, scholarly arguments about how to, uh, you know, which chapters belong and which don't. But it's the the normal version that you get these days is is arranged chronologically, which is probably w- not what Dogen would have done. But it's chronologically in in order of when it, each one was composed, because he puts a date at the end of each of his writings, and and then and then compiled together like that, and it ends up being uh, this giant telephone book sty- sized piece of of work. Uh, that I'm trying to cut down into more bite-sized chunks. So I've barely scratched the surface of it with two two books about it. I mean, I don't know how many more I'm going to do. <laughs> we'll see. So you didn't complete it. I mean, he, he, there's a lot more that he, when you say a telephone size, really that, that I mean, that, that many words? Yeah, it, it's huge. The, my teachers, my, my teacher, Gudo Nishijima, produced what was at the time the, it was the only version that was in print for about a decade, I think, in English that that contained the entire Shobo Genzo. And, and nowadays, I think there's three versions in print that contain the entire Shobo Genzo and then maybe half a dozen more that contain pieces of it in, in English I'm talking about. So uh, in my teacher's version is in four volumes and in each volume is, I don't know, three or four hundred pages. And and he includes a lot of footnotes and things, but there's not a lot of extra in there. It's mostly Dogen's work. So so Dogen wrote for for a guy who was only writing between the ages of thirty and his late forties, he really produced a lot of material. It's it's kind of impressive how much he was able to 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 get down on paper. I'm speaking with uh, Brad Warner. He, he's the uh, a Zen priest from uh, California. He's the author of uh, Don't Be a Jerk and Other Practical Advice from Dogen, Japan's Greatest Zen Master, and the follow-up. Uh, it came from it, came from beyond Zen, more practical advice uh, from Dogen. So don't be a jerk. What's, what's, uh, was that good advice from Dogen? Yeah, he he writes a chapter that in Japanese called is called Shoaku Makusa, which is which just means don't enact wrong things, don't do don't do wrong things, and and I looked at that chapter and I said, oh, you know, if we if I wanted to say this in contemporary language, what he's saying is just don't be a jerk. He's saying that the that that each individual act we do has has a kind of ripple effect into the, into all of humanity and perhaps even beyond that he would probably tell us so so you have to kind of watch what you do and of course there're going to be times when you have conflicts with people and there are things that have to be resolved and so forth but you never he, he's very he points out that you should never deliberately do something that you know to be wrong or to be hurtful uh, to somebody else for for any reason you you are you are and and that this is the essence of of Buddhist practice, which I think is very interesting because for a lot of people, Buddhist practice is this very mystical esoteric thing, and they don't really care about you know what else goes on in their life as they're going for this quest for spiritual awakening. But Dogen wasn't like that. He thought you you had to treat people well and that that was incredibly important. I'm John Schuck. I'm speaking with Brad Warner. We're talking about Zen. How cool is that? This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. Stick around. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through progressivespirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show, and be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website again is progressivespirit.net. Brad Warner is my guest. His website is hardcorezen.info. We're talking about Zen and the 13th century Zen master Dogen, who Brad believes is now ready to be paraphrased in contemporary language and idiom. Don't be a jerk, and it came from Beyond Zen, our two books of Brad's that provide 
Translation and commentary on Dogen, who, according to Brad Warner, is Japan's greatest Zen master. With that, when Dogen is writing all of his works, where, where is he getting it from? I mean, is he reading other people? Is he meditating and getting truth that way? For, and for you, or for anybody, I guess, for that matter, we talked about meditation as, as kind, of a, kind of a truth serum or something like that. Yeah. Uh, how, how do we, to what level do we read others and do we go within ourselves to find out what's real? I think it's a bit of both. And I, I think most Zen people would tell you that meditation is the most important thing. And th there, there are examples of famous teachers of Zen who were illiterate, for example, who, who couldn't read the sutras. And they're, they're held up as great examples of teachers who, who had an understanding that was, was innate, but was also buttressed and supported by the, the standard teachings because they would hear them, of course. So, so it's a it's a bit of both. Uh, I think the meditation is the most important thing, and I don't I don't really think it's important to be a Buddhist, you know, to go around saying, "Look, hi, I'm a Buddhist," or or to kind of identify with that. I think I think this teaching in the meditation practice transcends that to to a great degree. That you don't really you could be you could be a, a Presbyterian and and do zazen. It's it's. It, there's no contradiction, at least from the Zen side of the street, uh, in in doing both, and, or in having Christian beliefs and doing zazen, or or having Muslim beliefs, or Jewish beliefs, or or Hindu beliefs, or whatever. That that we're what we're trying to get into is a reality that's beyond all of that. So. It just so happens that the Zen stream contains a lot of written uh, stuff that relates to meditation practice, and it, and it happens to be a really good source. But I, I, I never even look at it as the only source, uh, even for my own stuff. And what you just said really shows that we often think, well, here are the world's religions. There's Hinduism and Buddhism and Christianity, and, and, and Buddhism certainly... And one level, maybe on some level, fits into that category, but in another, what you're just talking about, it doesn't. Yeah, it's it's a kind of interesting thing because I I, may, I was a history. Uh, that's my my degree, the one degree I have, which isn't a, an impressive one, uh, is in history, and I find history really fascinating. And and what what happened, I think, in the West is that the the West started started out as being very religion oriented you know the western civilization was kind of spread by the catholic church and and things like that so there was this very religious center to it but then they started to discover science and technology and these things co conflicted in some sense with religion and and so what you had to do in order for people to get good technology and flush toilets and electricity and all the rest of the things we enjoy today, steam power and stuff like that, you had to make a category so that religion could function on its own without having to constantly come in conflict with science. And and so you have a very strong understanding of that religion is one thing and science is another thing and philosophy is another thing and medicine is another thing. Well, this didn't happen in, in Asia. Uh, they, there wasn't that big split and, and there wasn't a big problem with, with science conflicting with religion. So, so that meant that Buddhism kind of exists in, a, in this kind of nebulous sense in which it includes aspects that we would recognize as religious and aspects we would recognize as philosophical that don't have anything to do with religion. And, and as such, it's a bad fit as a religion, I guess. Although what has happened since West, the Western culture has become so dominant in the world is that a lot of Asians now look upon Buddhism as a religion and then try to kind of make it a religion. So, so even you'll even find Chinese, Japanese, Koreans, etc., who who've made Buddhism into something that's indistinguishable from religion. Uh, I I don't think it's all like that, though. And of course, there'd be a great difference uh, between all the different kinds of Buddhism, as well as those who are uh, who may consider themselves Buddhists uh, within even the same tradition. Right? I mean, there are people who are uh, who are well. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'll ask you. Is that true? 
Yes, yeah, for sure. And and that's something I I find that a lot of people don't understand because they, because we haven't had Buddhism in our midst for very long. So people don't realize that Buddhism is 500 years predates Christianity by 500 years. And so we know that Christianity includes not just Presbyterians and Catholics and things we would recognize as standard Christianity, but it also includes Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, all sorts of other offshoots. I think the Moonies are consider themselves Christians, the Sun Young Moon people. Mm-hmm. So you you have you have just as much variety in Buddhism, perhaps even more variety in Buddhism. So when you say Buddhism, it's it's very much a blanket term. And in fact, it, it, the word Buddhism was invented by the British when they were studying the various religions of the lands they'd conquered, you know, India and parts of China and, and, and so forth. And, and so they, they were the ones who, who first grouped these religions together and said, oh, they're all forms of the same thing, whereas the people who practiced them at the time weren't really aware of that. Uh, they, they didn't really consider themselves to be all practicing different forms of Buddhism until the British started classifying it that way, which I, I also find interesting. Now, I'm speaking with Brad Warner, and you're listening to Progressive Spirit, and we're talking about uh, Zen, Buddhism, and we're talking about a couple of books uh, that he has written. It came from Beyond Zen, and don't be a jerk. These are translations of the 13th century uh, Buddhist Zen Buddhist master of Japan called Dogen. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier that I'm a Presbyterian minister, and this is what drew me to your work, because I, I see you reinventing uh, your tradition. I look back on my uh, the whole slew of Christianity. A lot of the stuff I don't believe in, in anything that, that happened, you know, wh- whether you're talking about resurrection or life after death or any of those things, and yet there's—and so we're always kind of trying to reevaluate and take to the present— some of the stuff that was revealed a long time ago. So, for example, when I go with when I'm thinking of, of your work, reincarnation is kind yeah. of a, a big traditional part. And, and I often wonder, do I really have to believe all that? No, you don't. It, and it doesn't really matter. And there, there was a part I put a chapter in Don't Be a Jerk called Did Dogen Believe in Reincarnation and Does It Matter If He Did? And and I, I, I found that an interesting question because it's come up. I'm, I'm a bit of a skeptic when it comes to, to reincarnation. I mean, I don't want to go into the whole ins and outs of it, but I'm, I'm suffice it to say I'm a bit skeptical. And I, I found that I was encountering a lot of strong reactions from Buddhists when I would put statements about my, my understanding of reincarnation out online and in books. And, and that, that, that chapter actually stemmed from a, a little bit of a, an argument, I suppose, or a disagreement I had with a, a, a Zen priest who's, who's quite a scholar, much better scholar than I am, who said that Dogen did teach reincarnation. And I went back to the chapters in which that's addressed, and I find that Dogen mentions reincarnation quite often, but he never he never tells people, okay, after you die, you're going to be reborn as something else, and you better believe that. Uh, he, he, in fact, he tells people just the opposite. He says, he, he, when people start asking him about that, he says, no, that's nonsense. That's not Buddhist belief. And yet, you know, 15 pages later in the current the way the editions are bound together right now, he's telling you about somebody who was who died and was reborn as something else. So you you find this weird contradiction. But he's always whenever he mentions the reincarnation stories, and I I still have yet to find an example that counters this proposition. Uh, he he's he's using them to talk about something else. Uh, for example, there's one part where he gives a detailed expression, uh, explanation of what supposedly happens to a person after they die. But, but what he's trying to emphasize in that chapter is how you need to be very devoted to the three, what's, what are called the three jewels in Buddhism, which is Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So Buddha as being the person from whom you receive the teaching, uh, you know, who could be the historical Buddha or just your, your teacher. The Dharma is the teaching itself, and the Sangha is the group that you practice with. 
And he's he's trying to emphasize that these are so important that even after you die and go into the bardo realm and, and then get reborn, you should keep chanting praises to Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. But so his intention is clearly not to tell you to believe in that you're going to die and go into the bardo realm and be reborn and so forth. His intention is to tell you Buddha, Dharma and Sangha are super duper important. You know, and so all the examples where he brings up reincarnation are like that. And when he whenever he addresses the straight up belief in reincarnation, he he denounces it. And it's very interesting because it, it's quite confusing, actually, when you when you read it. And it takes it takes a bit of work to try to resolve how how this fits together. Like that's the the, the matrix out of which he comes. Right. That's every, everybody is yeah. kind of there. And so he's explaining yeah. what he really wants to explain in the language that's familiar to people. Yeah, yeah, and that that's the case. The most of the people he would have been addressing because a lot of these things in Shobogenzo are transcriptions or at least uh, written versions of speeches he gave. We don't know if he actually gave the speech that he wrote down, but what we're left with is the writing. And and they were delivered to various groups of people, most of whom would have already believed in reincarnation to begin with. So it's, you know, it's like saying, I don't know, it's, uh, the one of the comparisons I used in an early book is to how Woody Allen in a lot of his movies will say Jesus, you know, but he's Jewish, you know, so <laughs> so it doesn't doesn't mean he's Christian because he just yells Jesus. It's, it's just an understood expression in, in his world. So, you know, he just says it. Like like in Christianity, there would be people who will be listening to this program and say, no, the resurrection, you got to believe in the resurrection of Jesus and that. And and but I would say I, I value the resurrection perhaps as a metaphor. I can speak the language to talk about something else. Yeah. Well, I think the resurrection is is one of those interesting things, because I, I, I often like to look into Christianity and Christian beliefs because I think it's real fascinating. And I, I think if your if your whole thing is dependent upon the historical veracity or truth of 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 reincarnate of, of of resurrection as a as a something that actually happened two thousand years ago, well, you're kind of stuck because you can't prove it. Nobody has a video of it happening or anything like that. So so you're kind of stuck with believing something you can't prove. So I think it's better to kind of just leave that question you know, to the side and look at the rest of what the tradition teaches and try to learn from that. That would be my advice or that that's how that's the way I understand Christianity myself. Yeah. You know, whether whether he was re resurrected or not, I, I don't know. You know, maybe he was, but but I just don't know. So so I want to try to dig into the things I can know. And I, I think there's a lot in the New Testament that's really, really solid stuff and really worth pursuing. And and if if you're going to say, well, that all falls apart if he didn't write, raise from the dead, I say, well, no, it doesn't. It's still great stuff, even if he never raised from the dead at all. You know, I, I think I think that's important. I, I'm with you on that. And I'm also uh, with you and the level of of suggesting. Um, well, I've lost my thought. Okay, I'm going to come back to it. I'm going to get there. That's fine. I know how that goes. I, I do want to talk about a couple of things before we go. One, one is ethics, and the other thing I want to talk about meditation retreats. Uh, but tell me a little bit about um, about ethics and Buddhism. I, it, a popular stereotype is that um, those who and, and and it isn't just Buddhists; it's also those within in the United States about self help stuff. People who like yeah. to talk about mindfulness, frankly, uh, or kind of uh, an escape um, and not really involved in the real world. But obviously, you're very much involved in the real world. Yeah, there's not much that 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 kind of worries me. I, I think I, I'd rather ha there be a mindfulness movement than not be a mindfulness movement. So I don't want to say too much negative about it, but I think they're missing a lot of that because they're trying to secularize it. And then they say, well, the ethical teachings of Buddhism are part of the religious aspects of Buddhism, and then we have to leave them aside. And I, and I think that's, that's a, the wrong way of looking at it. I think you really need to have the ethical foundation. But Buddhist ethics are, are funny, because we've got the 10 precepts, which are in, in several of them are almost exactly analogous to the 10 commandments. And they're just good, good moral sort of things to do. Don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, you know, don't, don't 
give way to anger is one of them that isn't one of the Ten Commandments, but maybe it should be. Uh, so, so we have we have those those ideas. The the history of them is kind of interesting because when Buddha first had his awakening moment and started trying to teach people. He, he just tried to form a group of people who would gather together and practice with him. Well, the problem was they had all sorts of conflicts, you know, as human beings do. And every time a conflict would come up, the Buddha would be the arbiter, you know, the ultimate arbiter, and he would, he would resolve it. And people would remember how he resolved all these conflicts. And after he died, hundreds of these were compiled into lists of rules for monks. You know, there were, there were I don't know, three or four hundred of these little rules. Later on, people realized, well, those, that's, how could we deal with that? Uh, that's too much. So they tried to winnow them down to the basic principles, and they came up with ten. And, and they're all kind of open-ended. So some people say that, that the there's this idea of the koan, the unanswerable question, a very shorthand version of what a koan is. And, and the precepts are looked upon as, as a kind of unanswerable questions. Because you say the first one is uh, don't take life. But it, even the most uh, observant vegan in the world has to kill something in order to just maintain their life. So So no matter how good you try to be, you can't fully observe the precept of not taking life. But you, you try, you aim for it, and, and this is considered to be important. And, and that's the eth where the ethical standards come in. You, you really kind of try to point yourself in the direction of being an extremely ethical person while understanding that there are times when the rules you set up for yourself actually get in the way of being truly ethical. That's <laughs> that's the conundrum you often find yourself in. Yeah, this is what I was getting back to my original thought, the question before I lost my thought. What, Zan, mm. you're, you're, the work, what I appreciate is check, continue to search for what is true and real. Don't let yeah. beliefs be the boundary that stops people from really exploring what's there. Yeah, I think that's important. I think you have to kind of go beyond what your own beliefs are. And you, like I said earlier, you find that you don't believe your own beliefs, you know. So you kind of, you kind of find this, this sense of, of truth that goes beyond, beyond you. My, my teacher had this weird, my first teacher, the American one, had this weird phrase that he used some, well, I only heard him use it once. So I don't know if this is a thing he ever told anybody else. But he said, it's more you than you could ever be. And meaning the truth is actually kind of embodied and you are part of that. But the truth is actually more you than you are, which I find to be a very weird sort of phrase. But I, I think it's, it's, it's useful and valuable. Is that what you mean with the title of your book, It Came From Beyond Zen? Yeah, that's a little bit, because Dogen writes this chapter called Inmo. It's, it's, it's not even a Japanese word. It's a Chinese word that just means it or something or that thing over there, you know, that whatchamacallit. You, so um, he uses this word Inmo to refer to something that's beyond human understanding. And I think given that sort of some of the mystical traditions within Christianity and Islam and Judaism, the Western equivalent of the, what he's talking about would be God. Although, although not God in the sense of a old white man with a long beard sitting on a throne in the sky, but a more transcendent sense of God in the sense that this universe is alive. We are alive because the universe itself is alive. And we don't understand that, and we separate living from non-living as, as categories of understanding things. But that, that, that's just a, a human categorization. We, we actually, and, and actually I did some research into it, and, and scientists these days are, have some hot debates about where to draw that line. We used to think it was, you know, very clear and easy, but there, there turned out to be a lot of things that fall into this vague category where you can't really say they're alive by the standard sense that we understand it, but we can't really say they're not alive. 
like crystals or viruses or or some other things they've they've just kind of been discovering. It's very interesting stuff. Final question: um, Meditation and meditation retreats. If someone were interested in uh, saying, "Well, I, hey, this Brad Warner it sounds like like it's fun. I'm, I'm interested in zazen here. What uh, do I do that on my own? Do I go to a meditation retreat? What do you suggest?" You know, I think I think for most people starting out, just doing it on your own is is perfectly fine. You can you can learn how to do zazen from there's. I have some videos out about it. There's a lot of people who have videos and little things online. You can find very easily lots of books, you know, are, are there too. And so you might as well just start on your own. Eventually, you'll you, you will probably start to feel the pull or the the need to share the experiences you're having with others. And and that's when you you might want to look for a group to sit with because you'll you'll find that your aunt Tessie and your and your cousin Bob or whoever they don't really understand what you're talking about when you when you start to to talk about these things you've experienced or or things you've felt you've understood through your practice and then then you start to look for retreats and teachers and things. Personally, I got lucky. I found a, a good teacher right off the bat, and then when I left him, I moved to Japan to get a job, not to not to really to study Buddhism. But I happened to luck into another teacher, one of the few Japanese teachers who who takes foreigners as students. I I just happened to be <laughs> to live near enough by that I could start go, going to see him. But you don't really. It's, that's not an absolute necessity. Uh, there, there were some people in the ancient times who only met their teachers once or twice in an entire lifetime. And so it, it's, it's not necessary to kind of just jump in and join a temple or to shave your head and become a monk. <laughs> uh, you can kind of do it on your own for a while before you need to do that. This has been a great conversation. I've been speaking with Brad Warner. His website is hardcorezen.info. And uh, we, we've been talking about all kinds of things, but in, in, including his latest book called It Came From Beyond Zen, uh, More Practical Advice from Dogen, Japan's Greatest Zen Master. So, uh, Brad, thank you uh, for, for being with me today and for, and for all the what you're doing. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's been really interesting. It's always good to talk to somebody who's deeply interested in this stuff. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social issues, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. It is a show designed for college radio stations and public radio stations and community radio stations and the independently owned commercial radio station. Are there any of those left? You can also catch Progressive Spirit on your favorite podcast app. The website is progressivespirit.net. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Schock. Be well. 